Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 12th, 2020, and this is episode 2710 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I have Carla Gorecki uh, about to come on the line with us. She, of course, is uh, deeply involved with the Free State Project. She's also running for Senate in the state of New Hampshire. And uh, she's on the show to talk to you. The way I'm phrasing it is strategic relocation to New Hampshire. Um, Free State Project's over a decade old now. It's done a lot of really great work, and they continue to try to bring people to New Hampshire. I'll let Carla explain more about why New Hampshire in a bit, but I'll give you like the short, short version. New Hampshire has an incredibly representative local uh, state government. In other words, like if you want to talk to your state rep in New Hampshire, he probably lives down the road from you, you know, on the end of the block, and his kids probably go to school with your kids. The the the, the number of people in the in the state house is very large relative to the population. And that makes the government very representative, and it makes it the type of situation when you, if you're going to be an activist, you can have a pretty big influence as an individual or a small group on state law, which includes, you know, the bad means that the, a, a, a gaggle of Karens can get together and, and, and bring the bad, but uh, a big gaggle of libertarian, anarcho, free state type people like the Free State Project can you know do a lot to get rid of bad laws, to just eliminate them, to decriminalize things. And they've had a lot of victories. They've had some defeats, but they keep chugging on, and their view is the concept of liberty in our lifetime. So I'm not big on the democratic process, <laughs> Um, but I would tell you that if you were ever going to get me to be active as a voter, it would be in a place like New Hampshire, right? And it just isn't the cards for me. Maybe it is for you. And New Hampshire has a lot going for it because of the Free State Project and beyond the Free State Project. It's just a great state. Overall, it's, it's a fairly free state compared to the rest of the Union. It's a small state. It's a beautiful state. Uh, it, even though it's a relatively small state, there's still a lot of space to kind of stretch out and stretch your legs. And, stretch. and I'll tell you, I almost moved to New Hampshire a long, long time ago, before there was a Free State Project. In 1993, when I got out of the Army, I walked from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire. I did a section hike of the Appalachian Trail. I got to a place called North Conway. I stayed there in a hotel for about a week, and I waited for my dad to come pick me up. And, uh, and then I came to Texas. And during that week, um, I stayed at a hotel. I was offered a job as a bartender. And even though I didn't like dream of being a bartender, I fell in love with the place. And, and I almost moved there back then. But I also was in a point in my life where I wanted to build a career, and I didn't think a career in bartending was what I wanted to do. So I, I, I stretched out another way. But it is a beautiful place. And so it offers a lot from the opportunity of strategic relo relocation. And I think this is a very timely interview. Because I think strategic relocation is happening in mass right now. It's, it's, it's devastating the big cities from a tax base and a real estate standpoint. And it's only going to increase more with more people wanting to homeschool, more people remote working, etc. So I figure with the audience as big as it is, there's probably some of you out there thinking right now, you know, maybe it's time to get out of here. And I'm not going to say move to New Hampshire, even though they're a sponsor and I'm supposed to, right? That's not how I work. 
What I'm going to say is it should be on your list for consideration, and they're running a big campaign right now about visit New Hampshire. And, and I'd say if you're going to relocate anywhere, take a couple, three days. Don't go to the tourist thing. Go to a place and experience it, as it would be if you live there. And the beauty with Free State Project is if you get in touch with them, and she'll tell you more about this in a minute, that when you get there, you're not like sitting there going, okay, here's New Hampshire, all right, I wonder where the place to go get a, you know, something for dinner is, or whatever. You know, I'm going through a tourist book. There's people on the ground that will help you. It's an amazing group of people. We'll have Carla on to talk about strategic relocation New Hampshire. And just a bit before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. Been with us forever. They were the original survival podcast sponsor, as in they were the first company that we took on as a sponsor back in 2009. And it is 2020. That's 11 years in the world of podcasting. Pretty amazing company. They got everything for your prepping needs. You'll find it all at safecastle.com. Next up, another long-term sponsor. I think he came along. Jeff came along about like two and a half months later after Safe Castle. Still here. Jeff the Berkey got Gleason. Um, water, it's critical to life. I mean, water is life. The water you're drinking from your city tap, in most instances, is safe. But every once in a while, you'll hear this thing like, uh, well... You know, um, maybe you guys should like boil water for the next two weeks because we screwed something up. When you get that boil water order, you've already been drinking the water that's already screwed up for like a week before they figured it out, sometimes longer. I've, I've watched some specials about like people are going to the hospital and they're seeing this breakout of illness and the doctors can't figure out what it is, which you know, during a pandemic might take even longer. And like three weeks into it, they're like, oh, it's the water supply. Shit. Tell everybody to boil water and let's like purge it or something. If you use a Berkey, you should for, stop worrying about that. I, I'm on a well. I still filter my water because it makes it taste better. And I never know if something could possibly contaminate my well. It's like a 500-foot-deep well. I'm not too worried about it. But, man, I don't worry at all. I just don't worry at all. The Berkey is a great-looking system. It really can't fail. There's no moving parts. It's the system that you once you put it in place, you don't have to worry anymore. And the best place to get it is from the Berkey guy himself. Why would you get it from the non-Berkey guy? That doesn't even make any sense. Check out Jeff's website. And since he knows nothing about, about branding at all, instead of theberkeyguy.com, which would have made sense, uh, his website is directive21.com. All right, with that, before I get Carla on, let's talk about a quote of the day. And I tried to pick a great quote for the concept of strategic relocation. And so what I found was a great quote by Alan Watts about change. And he said of change, the only way to make sense out of change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance. I think strategically, strategically relocating to improve your life would be one way to plunge into change, to move with it and join the dance. And I think there's a lot of other ways that that can play out as well. The world is going through a flux right now. It's a flux that I've been talking about for the last five years. It's a flux that I've said for the last five years, would be in the decade of the 20s, between 19, for 2020 and 2030, that this would be the greatest decade of flux that any living person had ever seen. And people thought I was a little bit crazy. At least some people thought I was a little bit crazy. I don't look so crazy now. And the reason I don't look so crazy now isn't because COVID made it happen. It's because COVID has accelerated this flux and this shift and this change. You do not see the things coming out of this COVID mass hysteria happening if they weren't already in play. 
it's not like we weren't already moving to a more remote worker society. Right? If we weren't already doing that, then, then companies right now would be doing everything they can to try to figure out how to reopen at physical locations instead of embracing this and running with it. You don't have a situation where 40, 50, 60, in some cases, four out of five parents questioned start seriously considering homeschooling as an option. And when they say that, they don't mean virtual school from the state. They mean bye-bye. And even if only 10% do it, when you have four out of five considering it, that's the latest survey. Four out of five considering a complete goodbye. Bye-bye. You don't get that from this unless it was already in play. When you start to see mass numbers of people fleeing Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, New York City, Chicago, during this type of situation, if that wasn't already going to happen, it would not swell the way that it is right now. You don't see major universities rolling out full online models if that wasn't already coming. You don't see any of this occurring if it wasn't already in motion. You would see pieces and parts of it as get-bys instead of embracing and, and, and it being that, that terrible phrase that I'm so sick of, but in this case it really is true, a new normal. The only way you get this much change from something like a pandemic is that change was already there. And all you've done, again, like I keep saying, is you took a fire that was burning and you threw kerosene on it. Not gasoline. Gasoline, gone. Kerosene is a long, sustained, spreading burn. That's what you've got here. Diesel fuel, man. And the only way you can make sense from this change is to plunge into it, move with it, and join the dance. However that makes sense for you. Because I completely believe if you think you're going to resist this, you might as well climb down into a giant gristmill stone being driven by four giant Clydesdale horses and stand there and try to resist the stone. If you do that, you will be ground under it so that the giant can use you for his bread. That's where we are. And when I talk like that, sometimes people think I'm talking about surrender. In some ways, I am. I'm not talking about surrendering to the systems. I'm not talking about surrendering to the oligarchy. I'm not talking about surrendering to the plutocracy. I'm talking about surrendering to the knowledge of the reality of this is what's happening. And then and only then... Can you join the dance and be fleet of foot, fleet of foot, so that you're one step ahead of the mass grinding, that you adapt to the new reality before the new reality gets here, so that we begin to rebuild our systems, our networks, our freedom, so we begin to rebuild our own food systems, our own barter systems, our own economic systems, our own legal systems, our own systems of resolution, of dispute resolution. Right? All of these things. That we begin to rebuild them before the old ones fall apart. So that we're already adapted to what is a new tyranny before it occurs. And the one way I know to do that the best is to embrace the concept of communities of like-minded people. That's what our guest is here to talk to us about today. And with that, hey, Carla, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
Hey, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you on. Um, let's start off with, because there's people that don't know who you are, what you're all about. Who, who, who the heck are you? I mean, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what, what got you to move to the, uh, the great state of New Hampshire in the first place. Sure. So uh, my name's Carla Garrick. I guess currently my hat I'm most wearing is I am running for state senate here in New Hampshire. But as you mentioned, I am a participant of the Free State Project. The Free State Project, of course, is a movement to try and get as many liberty lovers and libertarians to concentrate in the state of New Hampshire so that we can all sort of bandy together, you know, as we march on to this new, weird, totalitarian future. Uh, the idea is that, you know, we would have a bunch of us together. I'm actually originally from South Africa, so I've kind of done the police state thing one previous time already. And so I see a lot of those warning signs. And in fact, I saw them 12 years ago. Right after 9-11, we were in New York City and decided, you know, we needed to figure out what the future was going to hold for us. So we discovered the Free State Project. I'm a very uh, goals and solution-driven person. I was like, you know, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's go check out New Hampshire. Let's see what it's about. And 12 years later, here we are. So in a nutshell, I'm a African-American immigrant currently running as a Republican uh, first Senate, I used to be the president of the Free State Project, and I am also the only person who has ever organized the Porcupine Freedom Festival, that is Porkfest, three times, so I'm in it for a hat trick. <laughs> All right. So for people that maybe, I don't know, lived under a rock and have uh, have just tuned in to, to TSP for the first time today or maybe this week, uh, tell people what the Free State Project really is all about. Sure. So it's a movement to concentrate uh, liberty lovers in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, we often get asked the question, why New Hampshire? And basically, back in 2001, the concept started with uh, Jason Sorens. He, at the time, was a graduate student, hardcore young libertarian, and he had just grown very frustrated with the way national politics worked. So he wrote this essay. He was kind of like, hey, what would happen if 20,000 people moved together to a fairly low population state where, you know, we were very liberty forward? Could we actually make a difference? Could we create one place that could show that, you know, small government, limited government, very, very limited government, uh, could work. And so he wrote that essay and it blew up on the internet. This is back 2001. Uh, they decided, you know, they looked at 10 different states depending on certain metrics, low taxes, low population, you know, more liberty focused. And uh, the people at the time took a vote and New Hampshire won. So New Hampshire actually is quite unique in the sense that, you know, we have about 1.3 million people. We don't have a sales tax. We don't have an income tax. Of course, the Democrats are trying to fix that in air quotes problem for us currently. Um, but we also have the third largest legislative body in the English-speaking world. So there's actually 400 uh, state reps, House of Representatives, 
So they represent about 3,000 people. These guys get paid a hundred bucks a year. Um, and, you know, so it really truly still is a citizen's legislature. So that's the House. And then in the Senate, where I'm running, uh, we have about 20, we have 24 senators. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a place where you can come and, actually affect change and and we have you know so people have been moving since there was a really big uh, group of us probably a thousand people who moved in 2008 and since then you know, we've had thousands of other people who've moved and now I think what we're starting to see is a reawakening on the ground of a lot of disengaged folks who are probably our people you know who are kind of like you know they've they've walked away from from the silliness and the madness and all of that. So so the idea was we would all come together and then maybe we could do some awesome and interesting things. Um, for example, one of the things I do is I serve as the president for the Foundation uh, for New Hampshire Independence, and that is actually a 501c3 organization that is looking at ways that we can actually get more independence from the federal government. And a lot of that is just sort of educating people. But of course, you know, maybe there's a real opportunity right now for for different states to look at, you know, implementing more states' rights and and sort of moving away from from all the craziness that's coming out of the swamp. So we all know you're a troublemaker and a very dangerous individual that, you know, causes trouble. And back in 2010, you were causing trouble by having the audacity to film police officers who are public servants doing their public work in public. And so they arrested your troublemaking ass for it. Tell us a little bit about that case and what happened. Uh, sure. So, <laughs> you know, I don't mean to be a troublemaker. I would just say I'm a very <laughs> independently minded uh, person who just, you know, has my own sense of how things should work. So I don't go looking for trouble, but I often seem to find it. Um, so in this case, uh, back in 2010, as you said, uh, we were actually driving home from, from I, I was driving home from bailing out someone else from a 420 rally that we had done, and uh, I was following other folks home. It was late at night, maybe like 11:30 in March, New Hampshire, gray, cold, dark, all of that good stuff. We were two cars, and so. Uh, the police officer came from the front, put the blues on behind me, so I thought I was getting pulled over. I pulled over. Officer is like, no, we're not pulling you over. We're pulling that car over. This is pre-GPS. This is pre-cell phone cameras, mm -hmm. all that stuff. So I happened to have my video camera with me, and I said to the officer, look, man, I don't know where I'm going, so I'm following that car, so I'm just going to pull into this parking lot and hang out while you do what you got to do, right? And so uh, the officer was pretty aggressive from the start and sort of the, I just got a weird vibe and I was like, you know, I'm just going to audio and video record. You know, we know statistically speaking um, that that is actually something that keeps all parties safe. It's always great to have an independent record of mm -hmm. what happened, all that good stuff. So I got out of my car, I was parked, I was 30 feet away, I was behind a fence, and I just kind of yelled, hey, I'm audio and video recording, um, and my camera didn't actually work. So what happened was, because we have so many free staters here in New Hampshire, 
Um, and it was happenstance, I'm willing to say that, but it just happened that some other free staters were driving uh, past, saw that people had gotten pulled over. We like to sort of have that community sense of witnessing or just making sure, you know, and recording when we can. And so the word went out, so a bunch of people showed up. I think that escalated their mood. That certainly escalated our mood. Um, And so they came and they demanded uh, that I give them license and registration. Now, I was in a parking lot. My car was switched off. I was back in the vehicle because they had ordered me back in the vehicle. And this guy was being super aggressive. So I rolled up my window and told him I didn't think I needed to give him, you know, my papers. I was like, why? You know, you can't yeah. just walk up to someone in Target's parking lot and be like, who are you? I can't yeah. know, you know? So uh, so they didn't like that. They threatened to break my window. Things escalated from there. Long story short, I get arrested. They take me in. All the stories, you know, like I felt like I was in a really bad cop movie. They did the overlock on the handcuffs. I complained. They came over. They made them tighter. You know, like just things where you're like, oh, it doesn't really work like that till it happens to you. And then you're like, wow. So the mistake they made that evening was originally they just charged me with all the the troublemaker disobeying ones, right? Disobeying an officer. Uh, I don't know, something about government administration and, you know. But then they confiscated my video camera, which happened to be a birthday present my husband had given me like a month before that. And then when I was leaving, they gave me my handbag, which they clearly searched. And they were like, oh, yeah, we're keeping the camera. And I was like, the hell you are. And they were like, no, we're keeping it, really. We're keeping it for evidence. And I was like, well, in that case, you're writing me a receipt so that I have proof that you took the camera. Sure. And they refused. And then they charged me with felony wiretapping, which carries a seven-year sentence. It's a, uh, you know, it's a felony. It's a serious crime. But they added that on. So when we went to court originally, so they were processing me, we got to court, and they said, oh, no, we're going to drop the charges against you. And I, again, was like, the hell you are. (laughs) (laughs) So I instructed my lawyers to, to tell the judge that I actually wanted the case to go forward. They did not know what to do with that. The judge and the prosecutor were very confused, and they were like, no, lady, we're not going. Like, we're letting you go. It's fine. Go away. And I was like, well, in that case, I think I'll sue you. So we sued them. It was 30, I think the original one was like 33 counts of violations of my civil rights. Uh, We sued in federal court. Uh, It took four years and, you know, it had to work its way all the way up. It ended up in the First Circuit. At that stage, we had narrowed the case down to just this one issue about filming police officers. So basically, the argument they were making was, oh, well, no, we don't think there's an established right to film police officers in public, which, of course, wasn't true because the Glick case, that case from Boston where the Boston Commons had already happened by that stage. So then they were like, well, OK, maybe you're allowed to film police officers, but you're not allowed to film them in dark, in the dark at a traffic stop because that's inherently dangerous. And I was like, are you really making the argument that? Yeah. The, the, the Constitution doesn't apply after dark, <laughs> which was kind of the argument they were making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up prevailing in the First Circuit. So that's the, one of the, uh, you know, uh, the 
court just below the Supreme Court. And because I got what I wanted, I then decided to settle the case. So we settled back in 2014. You know, I made like close to $60,000. A lot of that went to the lawyers. I apologized to the taxpayers of the town of Weir because that's one of those problems where we, uh, you know, even when, when the right thing happens to the person who is hurt by the arm of the state, once again, it's not really the bad actors getting punished. It is us, you know, the taxpayer. So uh, so I settled the case, and um, I'm actually working on a book right now about it, um, and hopefully that'll be out next year. But, you know, that's the long and the short of it. So if, you know, so it's now established law that you are allowed to film uh, police officers in public. And I would recommend to your listeners two things. One was my camera was not working, and that didn't matter. So if you're ever in a situation where something is happening, you know, even if you just whip out your cell phone and your battery's flat, it's better to at least pretend that you're recording. Because that gives them a sense of, oh, I'm being watched. Maybe I should be on better behavior. And then the other good thing that came out of the court case was – uh, they clearly established that they do not have qualified immunity, right? Yeah. So qualified immunity is that get-out-of-jail-free card for cops where they say they're held to a lower standard than we are, right? So you and I are constantly told, uh, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. But when what they do with qualified immunity is they say ignorance of the law is no excuse Unless I'm the enforcer of the law, i.e. the police officer, then it's an absolute defense. So they're like, we're enforcing the law, but we don't have to know the law. So in in this case, at least for filming police officers in public, they have no qualified immunity and you can sue them in their personal capacity. Mm. I think we need more of that. Right. I I would like to, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rand Paul had a thing out about removing qualified immunity from the uh, police, and I, I actually tweeted back to him and said, "Rand, why don't you remove it for you guys as well? Why don't we just why don't we just get rid of it for everybody? Why does anybody get to say, well, I'm in this class? Of, why do the people that get to decide this in the first place get to decide that they're immune to what you and I are subject to? Because if I work for the garbage company, right?" And I, while I'm at your house, come come into your yard and beat your dog to death with a baseball bat because I said it, it it scared me. You might sue the garbage company because well they have more money than me, but you could still sue me and prosecute me, right? It, it doesn't like oh it's it's the garbage company's fault. It's not my fault. Like I don't get that protection as a garbage man. Why? And a garbage man is not expected to have some sort of elevated understanding of legal proceedings, is he? But a, a law enforcement officer who's out telling me I broke the law and taking my liberty is. And yet they have this little special bubble that they live in that, hey, I'm immune to prosecution for breaking the law. It's And people are like, you know, how would they do their job without it? Oh, I don't know, maybe better? Right? <laughs> Come on. I hear that one all the time. And I'm like, but how do... How do doctors do their jobs? They have personal liability insurance. Sure. And, you know, their insurance company partly tries to go 
don't kill people. And maybe yeah. if you're the doctor who has somehow managed to, you know, kill half your patients, they're like, you aren't going to get insurance anymore because you're not really in the right industry. Yeah, you need to go bust tables at Denny's or something. Like, this is not, this is not made, this is not, you know, for you. You know, maybe we'll take your gun away and give you a radio. You can go police them all. Right? But you don't need to, I mean, really, no. Seriously, if you. With, with the government, you know, the, the beauty of the free market, of course, is that there, you know, incentives matter, as we both understand. And so if you create this situation where someone is literally, you know, has the ability to take away your liberties and there are no, there is no control, there's no, you know, there's no uh, checks and balances, it's an absurd system. So, of course, This that we're seeing these days that are coming out is the response to just telling people that they're above the law while they're enforcing the law. Of course, we're going to have terrible outcomes, and that's kind of where we're at now. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about this new book you got out. Oh, yeah. So I have... Um, I have my first book out. It is called The Ecstatic Pessimist. It's now available on Amazon uh, in Kindle form, also Kindle Unlimited, and then paperback. And then anyone who's listening to this who, who wants to buy it directly from me, you can do that as well on my website, carlagarrick.com. Uh, but basically what it is, is it was a little bit of a test run, to be honest. You know, uh, um, I did my master's in fine arts in creative writing in New York City before we moved out here to New, to New Hampshire. And so some of them are like award-winning short stories. They're pretty artsy-fartsy. I'm not going to lie. It might not be everyone's cup of tea. Um, but there are also 13 essays about the Free State Project in there. So that covers a lot of the activism I've personally done over the years, not my court case, because that's a whole book. But, you know, we do we do really cool, fun stuff here. You know, it's it's fun when you're surrounded by like-minded people. So, you know, there's one about going out to the DUI checkpoints they do here. Uh, that's something that's uniquely, quaintly New Hampshire. So if they do a DUI checkpoint, they actually have to give notice in the newspaper mm. and tell you when it's going to be and where it's going to be. So for many years, we would go out, you know, and it'd be typically on Friday and Saturday nights when they could make a lot of bennies and, you know, spoil your weekend. And we would go out and we would do, we would warn motorists before the time, you know, one of my friends had a big laser, he would be like, turn now, we'd stand on the street with signs <laughs> and stuff and People would be genuinely grateful, you know, and, and just to qualify there, a lot of people would be like, oh, so you want drunk people driving around. It's like, no, I believe in personal responsibility, so I think that's a bad move. Like, don't do that. Don't put yourself or other people in danger for no good reason. But, you know, also these checkpoints, which is what they are, you know, they might catch one drunk driver, but they've stopped 500 people that night, and then what would often happen is then they would start arresting people for drug charges as well, right? So they even go beyond the scope, as we know government loves to do. Um, so it's got essays like that. It's got essays about, you know, 420 rallies we've done over the years. We had a situation many, many moons ago in Nashua where, I mean, it was literally, there were probably 100, 120 people. We were doing a pro-pot rally. It was a beautiful spring day. And 
there these two narcs just jumped out halfway through, you know, everyone's just, you know, smoking, people have bongs, people are hanging out, people are singing, you know, it was just a really nice day. And there was maybe like three black kids there and they were local neighborhood kids, like uh, I didn't recognize them. But the cops literally, you know how the undercover cops have the badges under their t-shirts that they like whip out at the opportune moment. So they like whip out their badges and literally only arrest the only black kid okay. <laughs> at this rally. And, you know, and we were all, you know, we're all activists. So people surrounded the car. People were chanting. So next thing we know, like 11 squad cars have shown up. There, there, sirens are blaring. Now it's getting kind of like feisty. There are cops with their Alsatians. It's, it's a very dramatic situation. But we're free staters. A lot of us carry a lot of us open carry, and a lot of us open carry when we're doing protests. You know, just levels the playing field. And so there is this beautiful moment where I didn't see all of this. I actually saw some of it in the video afterwards. There were two incidences. The one was two cops off camera, and you can hear them say to each other, "Are they? That guy's got a gun. Are they undercover? Like he can't fathom that citizens might just randomly be armed." And and then one officer says, he's got a gun. And then someone on our side goes, we all have guns. What now? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and so folks went to the police station. We raised money. We bailed the poor kid out. Um, so there are essays like that. There are also speeches from... Um, you know, when we triggered the move, so when we hit the 20,000 number of, of people who were supposed to pledge to move. Um, and then, you know what? There's some personal essays in there from uh, from just life changes and choices I've made. You know, I, I, I know you like to tipple. I used to be a big drinker, but I quit drinking some years ago. I went full sort of ancestral keto low carb, you know, high good fats, mm -hmm. that whole thing. So I lost 65 pounds. I've kept it off for several years now. Uh, you know, so I've made some lifestyle sort of choices and changes that I feel have helped me to be a, a, a I guess, more fulfilled, better person. I don't know. I'm less anxious, at least. So it sort of ends with a personal essay that sort of explains all of that. And then there are some stories about just growing up in South Africa and how weird that was. And my dad was a diplomat, so, you know, living across the world. So anyway, that is a long way of saying it's a whole lot of things, but everyone should buy it. The Ecstatic Pessimist, Stories of Hope, Mostly, and uh, Nick Gillespie from Reason Magazine called it a fantastic package of writings uh, that he highly recommends. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> so with all of this, you're also now running for the state senate. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so I am indeed running for state senate. People can find that at Carla4 with the number 4, nhsenate.com, uh, Carla with a C. And uh, so this is the third time I'm running. I ran in 2016, mostly because I got asked two hours before the filing period was going to close. Uh, the, my opponent is a, he's now 83, I believe. He was born before the Second World War. He's only ever worked for the government. Um, you know, he comes from a sort of 
Greyhound racetrack background, Lou D'Alessandro. Uh, so he's kind of an institution here in New Hampshire. So it's a aggressively big swing is how I would qualify it. So much so that in 2016, the, the NHGOP uh, could not find someone who was willing to run against him. So I got a phone call, you know, two hours before the closing period. I was like, I don't know, like, I'm not really a, a you know, d- politics person, I guess. Um, I am now, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were like, please, please, please. And I was like, fine, you know, I'll put my hat in the ring. That year, I got 40%. Um, in 2018, I did run again. I did do a bit more of a, you know, a real campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got my district swung 12 to 15% left because of that big blue wave, right, that yeah. came out. And, uh, and I still went up two points. So I got 42% in 2018. So I'm running again this year. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, you and I can talk about it a little bit, I guess. Like, no one seems to have a sense. This is just, you know, the craziest year in the history of crazy years. Um, So, you know, my money's on an alien invasion before. Yeah. Yeah. Before the election. Uh, but I am, you know, I am taking it seriously. I've been endorsed by, you know, the New Hampshire Liberty Alliance. I've been endorsed by Reopen New Hampshire, which I have been heavily actively involved in since all this craziness started. Um, you know, I've been out there. Our, our governor did, eh, no, nah, you know, I, I was going to say an okay job, but really he 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 didn't. I mean, we're going to see a lot of terrible economic fallout from a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. Um. So you know, I encourage people to go look at it, but really, you know, honestly, I need donations. My opponent last time had uh, half a million dollars. I had about thirty-eight thousand dollars. Uh, you know, he sent 40 mailers. I could afford four mailers, that kind of thing. So it really is a David and Goliath battle. I will be the best senator New Hampshire has ever seen. Um, I'm extremely principled, but I'm also quite, you know, charismatic and people like me. So I think I could work well in the Senate on both sides. I'm there to represent the taxpayer. My, my tagline is representing the smallest minority, you. And that's how I look at it, is everyone's an individual, and our job is to keep government out of the way and not, you know, try and be the arbiter and the person who says, you live and you die. You know, this this whole notion under the COVID stuff with this idea that some people are essential and some people are non-essential, I found horrifying and deeply insulting, and I have enjoyed spending the last five months writing, I'm sorry, I thought I was non-essential on every bill or parking ticket or huh. anything I have gotten from the government. I'm yeah. just like, nope, not paying, I'm non-essential. I'm not essential, so I, yeah, then you don't need me. Yeah, I, my, my response to that is whose job is not essential? Let's not worry about the business. I mean, I am, but let's 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 like I always say, like let's take that and put it on the shelf for the next five minutes, and we'll come back to it if we need to. But whose job is not essential to them, right? Like, why do you think that person has a job, especially like the jobs that suck? If that job was not essential, why do you think that person scrubs a toilet every day because they want to? 
Right? That job's right. essential to the person who has the effing job, you moron. That's Every time I hear that, you know. So apparently uh, a, a kid working at Walmart, he's essential, right? But a, a man trying to feed his family who, you know, builds framing for houses is not essential. And, and I'm not putting down the kid that works at Walmart. I'm pointing out that... The 18-year-old that's working a part-time job at Walmart while he lives at home is actually more equipped to deal without having a job than the guy whose family will not effing eat this week because you took his job away. Right, and I just, I mean, I, I'm sort of like, what were the optics? Who was sitting in a room somewhere going, well, you know what we'll do? We'll call ourselves essential. We'll take all... The protective stuff first, because, you know, I feel like people when when you sort of tear away the, the propaganda and the spin and the way they tell us to look at these things. Right. And you just look at it with a very clear mind. Basically, what happened was there was a group of people who did believe. There was an incredibly dangerous disease that was going to kill the original numbers where, you know, millions and millions and millions of people were going to die. And they got together in a room and they were like, we're going to call ourselves essential. We are going to take every piece of equipment that could protect us from this very scary thing that's coming down the pike. Oh, by the way, and you're non-essential. And no one wants to look at it that way, but I'm like, you guys said, you told us how you view us. And I personally take extreme exception to that. I will tell you, Jack, I, you know, I've been to all the reopen rallies. I was out there, you know, from the start. I am not someone who says it's, you know, it's a hoax or anything like that. I'm like, there's a real virus and it seems to be, you know, not great for old people in old age homes. But for the most other part, if you're healthy and you take care of yourself and all of that stuff, you should be okay. So, of course, we're all like, you know, what else is going on? And, you know, we could spend days <laughs> talking about that. But, you know, just the, the, the idea that they... And that they're maintaining all of it. You no, know? I think it's an intentional just destruction. On with this I think this is an intentional destruction of the Western economy. And I, I, I did not want to go there in the beginning. I tried to give people the benefit of the doubt of at least trying to do right or just being incompetent. But at this point, there is no other explanation. So when you've eliminated all other explanations, whatever's left, no matter how improbable, is the right answer, right? Occam's razor. Um, yeah, and, and there is no. I mean, I, it's the, in their own words at this stage. Someone sent me. I mean, I have to say, I'm one of those. I'm a repository for everyone else's conspiracy theory. People sure. just love sending me YouTube links to strange and interesting things. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and I'm a very open-minded person, so I'm always, you know, open to listening to weird stuff and being like, you know, let me make up my own mind. And I also think, as a as a more liberty-minded person. I don't have that much skin in the game, you know, like, I'm just curious about stuff. I'm like, yeah. I don't know, let's see, where does this take me? And so someone had sent me a link this morning from um, from Davos, and, you know, and, and it's just, it's very clear from the way, you know, it, this had Prince Charles in, it had, uh, who's the creepy old guy, uh, well, they're all Joe creepy Biden. old guys. But, Joe Biden? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so anyway. 
Soros, I bet. I bet Soros. The same language. The language is this is this. I mean, it even had Al Gore, right? It's it was all about we're in this reset. This is the chance where we can reset the world with our global agenda. And and I'm like, you know, I. I find like large global conspiracies hard because that's a lot of. But at this stage, it's really just. But if you get a here's my thing: if you get a global problem, then you can have a global conspiracy because you don't actually have to control everything. You only have to control a little bit, and then you're manipulating the way most people will respond. So if you have control of the media and you can put out a message, you know what's going to happen. So you don't have to have this mass coordinated thing going on to get a mass coordinated looking result. And I mean, I put out a thing today. It was a graph of the death rate in Sweden, which just is <laughs> bam slammed to the ground. And what I said is, all the experts you trust for advice on COVID call this a failure. Please right. wake, please wake the f up. Yeah, and like this is this is what this is what they call a failure. And right now, I'll tell you this: you can do whatever you want to try to slow this thing down. I looked at the data coming out of all these countries starting in March, and I got to the point where I can look at a graph of the case rate, the way I look at a stock for a technical analysis, and go, "Here's your peak, and here's your six weeks to where it ends." Mm -hmm. And so I said that about three weeks ago about Texas and Florida, and if I would have drawn my projected graph, they would look exactly like they do today. And I've got all this documented, so nobody can say, "No, you didn't. No, you didn't." This is completely patently obvious, and and my point with this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty pretty much an Excel ninja. I did a lot of my life in, in marketing and sales, being able to do mathematical modeling and forecasting and things like that. But I'm really not that smart when it comes to it. I'm just good enough to bullshit a CEO. And um, my point was, do you really think if I can tell you exactly what this timeline looks like? That anybody making these decisions, saying we need to do all this other bullshit, can't. Do you really think that I'm that much smarter than them? That I'm somehow able to like spirico domus this shit out of the ether or something? Or is this just oh look, there's a double shoulder pattern, just like you get in a, an investing scenario? And look, then right, and, and so that's what's happened in every single place. And it didn't matter if they locked up tighter than a monkey's butthole, like freaking Italy. Or they did very little and only made it voluntary social distancing, like Sweden. The actual pattern, once the Rona comes to town, looks the same. All they've done is make this take longer. The only reason you flatten a curve is real simple, so you don't overload the hospitals. If the hospitals are pushed to their absolute limits, but they don't get overloaded, you don't flatten a curve unless you want to make it take longer. It is a dumb. Dumb, stupid, repeat, stupid thing to do because the curve, when it's flat, doesn't have any less people in it. No less number of people die, unless the reason they didn't die is we had a doctor to take care of you instead of not having one. And there was I can't remember his name, but he's like one of the most preeminent German epidemiologists in the world. Came yeah, out that. right out at the very at the very beginning. Came out in March and said. This is going to be a six to eight week cycle wherever it goes. There's nothing you can do to change that. You might slow it down, but if you slow it down, I have no idea why you would want to do this. And his thing back then was lock all the old folks' homes up, screen everybody that goes in and out of them, do your best. You're still going to lose some, and let everybody else go on with life. Put some basic social distancing in place. Go on with life. That guy sounds really smart right now, but we're still not listening. 
We have at least right. two and treatments. We have two treatments that work. Agenda is something different to what you know they're telling us. Yeah. A, a few comments. One is, you know, this will be very interesting from from the perspective of what kind of global damage we're doing in the sense that there is never, to my knowledge, and, and I think I'm 9-11 maybe a little bit, but this idea of we have had, you know, five months of nonstop worldwide propaganda. I don't watch television. I have, you know, I, I just, I, I live my life. I read a lot, but, you know, I'm not going to listen to these people trying to terrify people. I think they are spreading fear. Fear makes you obeyable, all of that. Here's an example of the fear spreading. So right at the start, right, you know, everyone was a little, I was cautious. I didn't know what was happening. My husband had flown back. He got back from South Africa the day before they shut their border. They're still closed. You can't get in or out. So thank God he got back, right? So because he came back and we've been traveling, we wore masks for a while. Uh, you know, maybe the first uh, couple of weeks after he was back, if we went somewhere public. But then I was invited to speak at the first reopen rally. And as we were driving up to Concord from Manchester, uh, I saw I had a, a push, you know, I had a voicemail on my phone, and I was like, oh, what is this? And it was, it was, I still have a 917 number from when I lived in New York City. So it was from the health department of New York City. So this is in March, April. Uh, so allergy season, we'll start there. And the message was pretty much, so it's a push voicemail that I assume went out to everyone who has a 917 number. Sure. And it said... If you have a fever, a runny nose, a sore throat, you may have COVID. Yeah. And, and, and when I heard that message, I was like, this is all some kind of nonsense. It's manufactured. It's all kinds of nonsense. But I was like, if you're in a true pandemic and you have to go cough up, you know, you have to go find some patients. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Like, no. I was like, okay, now I don't. Now I don't trust anything that's coming out of this noise, right? No, no. And it's it, it, at this point, what, the way I phrased it a couple weeks ago, and it's becoming more and more evident. The media and the government are now putting COVID on life support. In fact, they put it on life support like three weeks ago. Now they're pleading with us not to pull the plug on the life support. Because this whole thing, I just said that if, if COVID rates were a, a stock, I would short the shit out of it. I would have done it two weeks ago, right? Like, <laughs> like this is not, there's nothing unclear about what's happening. And what they're going to do, like, gee, this is hard to figure out. They're going to claim that their mask orders created the drop in cases that were so predetermined that you had to be a complete idiot not to see them coming. And yet they're still screaming at us like we're all going to die. Like, this is not what a pandemic looks like from a disease standpoint. It is from a government reaction standpoint. So the, the reaction doesn't look like the problem. Right. And, and I, I frequently say, and I do encourage everyone you know, listening to this, like we have to frame this the right way. So when someone says, blah, 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 because of the pandemic, I'm like, no, because of the government's response mm -hmm. to the pandemic. All of the problems we're going to see, and, you know, here in New Hampshire, we had a 2.3% unemployment rate mm -hmm. before this happened. Like, the economy here is fantastic. Anyone who's listening to this, who's thinking about making changes in their life, New Hampshire is the place to come. There's a growing community of people who know what's going on, and we want to build something new and special, right? But for for... 
you know, so so our unemployment rate went from 2.3% to almost 30%. Our biggest city, Manchester, where I live, have 120,000 people. Within the first two weeks of the lockdown, they we had more people unemployed in New Hampshire than the entire population of Manchester and Amherst. You know, I would say to people, so when you drive around the city, just go, none of these people have jobs anymore. Now, also, we're a frugal state where, you know, we don't really have like a minimum, you know, wage. We don't have, you know, $15 an hour, that kind of stuff. I think we're tied to the old federal number, so it's seven twenty-five, whatever, right? So, so you know, people are frugal up here. That's just, you know, how we are because we got personal responsibility and people got bills to pay. Um, so... With the, with the government handout, that has caused massive problems for us because now it's, it's like the they don't want to go back to work. You know, from the 80s. Everyone's like, we can't get people to go back to work. Yeah. There are help wanted signs everywhere because everyone's like, yeah, no, I'm making four times what I need. Sure. Sure. On the yeah. And I see, I think this is all, this is all planned. This is, I, I hate saying that because I am, I've been the, the only person in the survival preparedness world that you could have labeled the anti-conspiracy guy. Like, I, I am the anti-Alex Jones. I, I get accused of being an Alex Jones once in a while, but, like, I am literally the anti-Jones. And I have been for over a decade now. But when I see something this blatantly obvious, and I cannot give you a better explanation, you have two things to treat COVID with. One is an inhaled steroid that's completely safe. The other is a 70-year-old malaria medication that's completely safe. The trials they did on, on hydroxychloroquine were so flawed as to be criminal, right? Why would you do that? If you, if you actually wanted to solve the problem, why would you overdose patients at the end of life with a medication when the proposed hypothesis was used a small amount at the beginning of the infection? Like, why would you do that other than you wanted a failure? And to me, you know, you can tell all your Bill Gates and, like, injecting you with a RFID chip and shit. Just shelve that. I'm saying they're destroying the, the, the social fabric of the country so that they can control you, which is what they've... And that's the thing. It's not a change. It's not a change. It's the same thing. It's the same game that they've been playing for over 100 years. Divide and conquer. It's just, oh, look at, look, at the, look at the yummy, yummy opportunity we have to speed all of this up. Right, I, and I think you could even go as far as to say, and I've certainly said this on other shows over these months, you know, what really struck me is how distinctly when we look at that essential, non-essential division um, and all the changes we're seeing, how clearly it is to punish Anything that's, you know, let's call it a luxury good, but yeah. travel, restaurants, rock shows, music shows, anything that's fun in life, basically anything that's, you know, if you have a little bit of disposable income, you know, you're going to go do it. And not even disposable income. You know, I was shocked to hear that M McDonald's, who I assumed would have done actually quite well during this time. I mean, they're set mm. up for drive-through and all of that. Yeah. McDonald's globally, their sales dropped by thirty percent. That's a lot. And if places like McDonald's are being affected like that, then you can imagine, as I do, because my favorite sushi place went out of business, my favorite Lebanese place went out of business. Any of the good restaurants here have disappeared, right? So, so when we look at this, as you say, 
it doesn't have to be a conspiracy beyond, hey, can we create can we can we put the nail on the coffin of the slave class, right? So can we get global socialism? We're going to get everyone on. I believe this is twofold, right? One to introduce universal basic income. That's what that six hundred bucks was. It's going to, you know, that something there is going to happen, and it's for universal health care. Yeah. And th- they did it. You know, I'm like, well, well done. I guess you guys were sitting around. They were waiting, as we know, with the agenda. Whatever the, the the thing was where they, they were planning, if there's a new pandemic, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this. So there have definitely been these plans, and they've been training all these nonprofit organizations and all these arms, which is to go back to that idea of it doesn't have to be a global conspiracy if you've just trained enough people to react according to a master plan that you have spent time training people in. So each one of those orgs just think, oh, wow, I'm just implementing this. I know what to do. But meanwhile, it's like, oh, wait a second. We all went to these same conferences that told us when this happens, let's do this. And the this is what we're seeing now. So I think this is a genuine I mean, we're just, I think we're, we're, you know, we're just straight on the path to, to socialism. And I will tell you the only thing saving America at this stage is gun rights. I mean, it's that, you know, if I was, you know, if I was the big bad guys, I'd be like, okay, that's the one thing. And, and I guess what they decided is, for years and years and years, they were like, we, we got to figure out how to take their guns. And I think maybe what they now figured out is, no, if we just scare them enough, people will be obedient little sheep. Yeah. And, you know, and, and... I think their plan is, the plan is, believe it or not, this will sound crazy probably, but I think the plan is for Trump to get reelected. Um, but I think this is a... See, the one thing that the left is really good at is incrementalism. That's something they do better than their right. They're willing to go backwards a step to take four forward. And this, what's been done, we have not seen the fallout yet economically. What we think is a bad economy is going to look pretty good in a year. And I don't think that they want to take the blame for it. And I think they see the opportunity to get everything they want in one fail swoop 2022-2024. Because when I look at Biden, I'm like, okay, that you just... You just sent up the white flag 80 feet in the air and, and signaled surrender. Like, you don't want to win. And, and the idea that all of a sudden he just soared in the polls because some some guy endorsed him in South Carolina or whatever is just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so parties determine who wins a primary. We, we all know that, right. especially at, at a national primary. So you, you get Biden. Then, you know, the announcement comes out yesterday. And I, I said this like three weeks ago, that they're planning to lose. And then when Harris comes out, you're like, okay, so you literally picked the worst candidate for vice president you could have picked out of everybody you could have picked except maybe Stacey Abrams. You've done, you've done better than Stacey Abrams. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. Like, if you really, really, really wanted to lose, you would have picked Stacey Abrams. But since you only really, really want to lose, you pick Kamala Harris. So... I see them planning to lose, and I see that the whole plan is for this economy to crash and burn going into 2021, and then it's all Trump's fault, right? Because there will be no more pan. There will be no more pandemic. There will be no more pandemic by the by the time we get a uh, by the time we get a vaccine. The pandemic will already be gone. 
They'll force it on as many people as they can, and then they'll claim the vaccine saved us all. Then the economy will crumble. Then they'll say Trump has no excuse. And they need someone to lose they can blame, right? That it's not, it's not a failure of the left. It's not a failure of socialism. They needed him to go complete duck crazy nuts because Biden t Biden's history is not one of complete whack job leftist. It, it's more of a kind of leftist moderate, right? It's not this right. extreme. So they needed him to go extreme. They needed him to look like he's breaking down with dementia. They needed him to pick somebody that looked right but's wrong. So that when he gets when he fails to win, it's not a failure for the left. It's we had the wrong guy. And now wait and you see what happens. And I know people think I'm nuts when I say that, but man, I'm telling you, that's and then you add this to it, and people are like, Well, what's gonna give a full sale, you know, holdover to the left if Trump wins reelection? The the next Great Depression that you're about to go through that you still don't believe is happening right in front of you right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people have any sense of what this economic fallout's going to be. I can, I can anecdotally tell you, when I moved to New Hampshire 12 years ago, one of the things I really loved is there was, I mean, this is a very uh, surprisingly wealthy state. And, you know, we never saw, there weren't panhandlers. I, I, didn't, I did not see a panhandler in New Hampshire till maybe four years ago. Okay. And then we had, you know, the opioid crisis. We could talk about, you know, what, what the reasons are for that and whatever. I think part of it is because of the 2008 economic crisis. So I'm one of those people. I've gone through so many economic crises. Sure. And, you know, I have my gray hair to prove it at this stage. I went through the 2001 crash. I went through the 2008 crash. So at this stage, I'm kind of like one position to, to bear those things in a better way. But we now have, you know, we have little tent cities in New Hampshire, something that we did not have at all. And I see those people and that sort of manifestation, both of the, the social problems we see and then just the homelessness, the sort of debauch, like, you know, I don't know, it's all gross. But that whole um, thing is actually from the 2008 economic crisis, but no one's framing it right. So I look at that crisis and I go, well, we have, uh, you know, done eight times that bailout last I looked. You know, we're up to, I think, with Trump's executive order this weekend, aren't we up to like eight trillion dollars of funny money? And I'm like, so this fallout is going to be eight times worse economically because we've also destroyed a lot of people's livelihoods. It's going to be eight times worse. And so I think you may be onto something. They get to blame Trump, mm -hmm. and then they get to just do full, full, you know, socialism. Everyone's going to get a UBI check. Everyone's going to have health care. People are going to think that's the way they want to live. They're not going to understand what happened. And, you know, people don't understand the numbers anymore. You know, a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years, and a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. So when people jump from like a billion to a trillion, I mean, we are talking actual like insanity level zeros, and I don't think anyone gets it. Like we do, of course, and, and you know, I'm really glad I got my gold, silver, and lead, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> 
But, you know, it's just, I think we're in for a rough, rough ride. And I I could see it being, let's blame Trump. Um, I think also possibly what would happen is it'll be interesting to see if we have election fraud. I could also see, a you know, a cadre of Democrats being like, let's stuff some ballot boxes. Who knows if that's going to happen? But then also... Maybe they're creating this opportunity for these Democrat hotspot cities, right, where things are going to blow up, and and they are in in some places already. But that you know, I mean, the 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 Democrat states are looking for money. I mean, they're out. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Pay the teachers' pensions. They can't pay. You know, like there's 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 a lot of stuff under the surface that is all bad. <laughs> well, no, there's there's some mega trends going on. Uh, I've been doing a series on them uh, about the coming economic crash. One is the migration out of the cities yep. because of this, and that's going to cause commercial and uh, residential real estate to crash in like L.A., Chicago, New York, and then that drag. When real estate goes down in major markets, it drags real estate down in most other markets, not all, but most. So you've got that. You've got a massive shift to homeschooling. Um, mm-hmm. The homeschool co- company we work with said they have never seen anything like this in their lot ever and in I their think existence. That's a huge opportunity, and we should. It, it's a great opportunity, that. but let's let's do this whole thing with you know Walmart's the number one employer in the country. No, the public school system is. The public school system employs three and a half million teachers, all of whom are paid a, you know, they're heroes, they don't make any money, bullshit. All that make a good income compared to a Walmart worker that has one and a half million employees. That's just teachers. Three and a half million teachers, the sector employs over six million people. Okay? That sector is gonna, you're gonna see around 300 to 600,000 public school teachers laid off by this winter. I'm telling you right now that's gonna happen. I have no doubt. I would put money on that. Okay, what do those people do? They have no marketable skill in a, in a declining economy. I'm not saying they can't do anything else, right? What I'm saying is, like, if your, your resume is I taught fourth grade for five and a half years, and I have 87 applicants for this one job, I'm probably not going to give you a job. So their retirements are flushed down the toilet. Their jobs, that's, and then they're going to move. And in this whole thing, at this point, then you've got to move to automation. That's going to kill jobs. And it just keeps going. And you have this, see, all this stuff, Carla, I don't know how much you pay attention to what I do anymore, but I've been saying this for five years, and that this decade was a decade of flux, that all this would happen in. COVID's like somebody took a, a, a 50-gallon drum of kerosene and dumped it on the fire, and it sped all this up. And so when, when, the, when this is over, and I mean the, the disease portion of this is over, to the point where they can't pretend it's not over anymore. When, like the, you know, when the death curve says it's over, is that's when it's over. Like people aren't dying. Okay, we're not doing this anymore. Well, and then, and then, then well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Then the expectation is going to be, well, everything will come back. No, do you think that sushi place that went out of business that you loved is coming back? Do you, I mean that it can't just come back when you've destroyed that business? My favorite place is a place called the Bird Cafe in Fort Worth. Been there nine years. Make the best old fashioned on planet Earth. Out of business. Gone. That's not coming back. Will there eventually be another restaurant in that space? Probably, but it ain't going to be like, okay, COVID's over, da 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 and it opens back up, and it's a great place. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of businesses that are gone. The people that own them might be surviving under payroll protection right now or something, but when this ends, and you can't just keep spooning the gravy out, all those businesses are never coming back, and you add these other things into it, 
we have a catastrophic recession at a minimum coming in 2021. At a minimum. At a mi absolute minimum. And if you want to sell all this crap you're talking about, you need that. Think of Big Brother in 1984. It wasn't enough that he said he loved Big Brother. He had to mean it. To get what they want, they need the people to not just say they want universal health care. The people have to mean it when they say it. And the way you do that is you destroy everything that they have and you say, I have the only answer for you. And then people don't care anymore. It's the same way you domesticate a wild pig. You catch a baby pig, you take it from its mother, you feed it from a bottle, and you make it dependent upon you. And now I can raise a whole new group of, of, of domesticated pigs out of the wild. And that's what they're doing to us. They're, they're trying to domesticate us. That, that's, the, that's the actual thing going on. They're domesticating the human. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think the, the, the manifestation of that is the masks. Oh, yeah. You know, Th that's like the last here piece. Here in New Hampshire, we do not. I think we might even be the only state now that doesn't have a mandatory mask. Um, Oklahoma and South Dakota both don't either. Okay, and I would assume that that was, I, I, I assume South Dakota. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we don't have it, but then I don't know why, you know, Governor Flununu, as I've been calling him, so, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm on, I'm, I'm not on the happy list this year for my, okay. <laughs> for my NHGOP, but, gov you know, yesterday announced that now we are going to have mandatory masks for any event over 100 people. And I was just like, really now? Like, why? You know, we had we had the Porcupine Freedom Festival. We had a thousand two hundred people, and we, you know, the people who chose to wear masks and to socially distance, they had bracelets. They did it. I saw less than ten the entire week. The rest of us just did what we wanted: hugs, kisses. Kids were having a fantastic time. So many of the children and the parents were like, thank. Thank you, thank you, thank you for just giving us some normalcy back in our children's lives. And no one got sick. We were fine. And the funny part was I assumed some people would. Actually, I was like, well, if we're going to bring that many people together, you know, Woodstock was in a pandemic. So yeah. I was like, well, if the hippies could do it, I bet we could do it. Um, and, and, you know, no masks. And so why would we start with this conditioning Now, and I'm like, it's all about control. And it's at that stage where, you know, I, I don't wear a mask when I go into a store and, you know, and, and I am open carrying everywhere I go now because I'm just like, look, I don't know what's happening in the world and I want to be able to take care of me and mine. And, uh, and I think it's so weird. I mean, one of the, you know, like yesterday, I, I mean, I did, uh, it, it was required to wear a, a mask from like the parking area to the, the function room, right? So when you're walking through the corridor or whatever. So I had a porcupine bandana on with my gun and I was like, how is this even, this is what they're making me do. I'm like, I'm pretty sure this would have been illegal six months ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you think lockdowns are like, gonna stick around i mean when do you see that ending and what do you think we can do about it so that's a, that is a good question i mean what we can do is disobey don't comply write letters to the editor talk to your friends it's hard but we're at the stage where it's like everyone has to be brave what we believe and what we are doing is not wrong 
in a free society, free people move freely. You as an individual are allowed to do and, you know, do and say and go and whatever where you want. And no one can tell you, you know, it's just a mask or it's just a lockdown. So I do think, you know, we, we have to be brave. Now is the time. I'm truly hopeful still that it can be peaceful. I think, you know, America might, you know, it might be time for more states' rights. I think it might be time for, you know, one of the things I think Trump did really well was to, it was a smart move, was to be like, oh, we're not going to do a federal response. Leave it up to the states, right? And mm-hmm. here in New Hampshire, then the governor was like, leave it up to the towns. And so I've actually liked that approach because that is in some ways a devolution of power. So in some ways there's this two tensions of, sort of a decentralized model, which I would say is more on, you know, the liberty side of things. And then there's this propaganda, masks, everyone's going to die, fear, 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 fear side of things, right? So we're battling that. And I think by being brave, we can also show people you don't have to be scared. You know, I've gotten so many death threats and wishes and just (laughs) shocking. I mean, to me, it is shocking how horrible people are, right? But, you know, people from the start were like, literally, like, if you go to that rally, I hope you die. I hope you get the COVID and die, you know. And so I'm just out there being like, I'm still here. I'm still healthy. I'm doing great. My friends are doing great. We get together. We've had parties with hundreds of people. We do pig roasts. We're just going about our business. And the thing is, you start to find your other people. You'll see them in the store. And you'll have that little connection with the eyes. Uh, last night I was in a store and I actually came home and said to my husband, it's one of those things that like moms have or, or pregnant ladies have where they have that knowing look, you know, actually people who carry have it too kind of thing, you know, like where you're like, oh, I'm in a secret club. I see you. <laughs> and, and, and that sort of like eye contact with, with other brave people, you know, where I want to, I want to empower people because how we beat this is actually through human action and through our own empowerment. You're a survivalist. I'm, I mean, I, my, my, my garden isn't doing so great, Jack. You're going to have to come help me. I think <laughs> the critters, the critters think I put in a salad bar for them. So that part, you know, I'm not good at yet, but you know, we source our meat locally, our water, you know, our community is really, in some ways, our community here hasn't even our lives haven't changed that much because so many of us have been planning for this for a very long time. But with the lockdowns, you know, in, in, in my book, The Ecstatic Pessimist, one of the things I actually only noticed after I published was I was like, wow, a lot of these essays actually deal with, uh, first it was, a, I think it was like a school lockdown. Then we had a street lockdown. Then we had a whole neighborhood in my neighborhood lockdown. And I, you know, I went through a big uh, 1984 is not supposed to be an instruction manual rally, you know, that kind of stuff. Then we had like um, the entire... Uh, commercial district got locked down for some botched uh, drug raid and they actually ended up tear gassing like 220 something cokeheads in a hotel room to death you know but then they shut down the entire commercial area of Manchester then so so we've actually over the past 10 years I have seen that sort of progression of 
testing people's appetite, right? And someone like me has fought back at every moment and at every step of that thing. But, you know, we throw a rally. We have 100 people who show up. They send their drone. They take photos. They're like, oh, we know these are the troublemakers. And so the question, I think, and this is unanswerable at this stage, but the question is, like, what's the tipping point, right? Like, at what stage? Like, here in New Hampshire, we had stay-at-home orders, but they weren't really enforced. And I would go on shows and on the air and write essays and letters to the editor and all of that stuff. And I was like, look, guys, the problem is when you write these laws, you're creating an enforcement obligation. Like, what are you going to do? Are we going to go around, like, locking people up? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy, like, no, of course that wouldn't happen. And in today's paper, every single quote is masks, enforcement, sending the police in, uh, using the Liquor Commission's uh, enforcement arm. So, But what they're doing now that they're very clever about is they're not going after the individuals, they're going after the businesses. So to solve this problem, we do need business leaders and business people and you know, uh, to, to actually say no. And we have seen that. We had a racetrack here that said they would open up, and they did, and then, you know, the AG shut them down. I, I, I mean, at some stage, you know, we're going to have to say there's a line in the sand, and I'm not 100% sure what that line is for me yet, but I'm telling you that they're starting to push it pretty much. You know? No, there's like, a saying. Guys, there's a saying that's starting to come up in the, the the libertarian community right now, and I'm going to use a word that some of my listeners might not like. So you might want to skip ahead 30 seconds. You guys probably know what it is. But the uh, the saying is, "Leave us alone" can really quickly turn into "fuck around and find out." And I think Why? that we you're if you want if you want to get the people who just want to be left alone involved in the violence. And that's not what I'm advocating, but there is a point where people say, I, I'm done. I, I, you do what you got to do. I'm doing what I got to do. I got to take care of my family. I got to make my kids have a normal life. I don't believe your bullshit anymore. And you can have a real powder keg. My preference would be, you know, be brave is, is, is a big part of it. And it would just be, don't say anything. Don't don't get a big group together. Don't you know announce I'm opening my one store on you know August 13th. Whether you say just everybody open up and go back to work all at the same time. They can't keep their own damn police station from being burnt down by a bunch of college dropouts. Yep. Right. If you open up a a restaurant or a bar or two or three of them in one county, some fat ass sheriff will send his fat ass deputies out and shut you down. That will happen. We've already seen it. Right. And Hector County, you guys need to get that guy the hell out. I'll just say that. Other otherwise, if you open everything everywhere all the time at the same time, they can't do anything. They can't do shit. They can't do it. It's it, it'll be a point of. I guess people don't want to be governed anymore. I Like, we can't do this. But that's what it takes. And it doesn't have to be everybody, but it has to be overwhelming. Yeah, and it was interesting here. I mean, one thing I thought was super cool when, when all the Black Lives Matter stuff was blowing up, you know, we had marches that were organized. And that's okay. Here. You know, 10,000 people and, in the street burning shit. 
you know, and, and, and five inches apart for as far as you can see, that's not a public safety risk at all. No, I mean, I thought it was hilarious. I actually wanted to make memes that where I would superimpose the things that the Karens said to me yeah. when I went to the reopen rallies. I just wanted to superimpose on the Black Lives Matter photos because, you know, it would be like, die, you C-word, yeah. you know, or whatever. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's not going to go over well. But here in New Hampshire, a very unique thing happened that was very cool. So they announced where the marches were going to happen and all of that. And I'm not saying they were militia, but... Everyone on South Willow boarded up their uh, their businesses, and there were hundreds of dudes with guns that stood the entire street. We have a free stater bar here in downtown Manchester, Murphy's Tap Room. Fourteen guys in full gear showed up because it's a big glass window thing, and it was pretty clear, you know, it was close to yeah. the action. Yeah, it was a and target. And they just stood there. There was no violence in New Hampshire. There were no altercations between the groups. When you just send the right message, which is, I ain't going to take your crap, you know, people will people go for the soft mark, right? Yeah. That's what bullies yeah. do, and that's what dangerous people do. Well, you know, we so had a very similar juxtaposition here, but it, we didn't even need the people kitted up. Like, we had, like, the tale of two cities with the, the thing was Dallas and Fort Worth. So Dallas had broken windows, shit burned. It wasn't like Portland or anything, but they had riots. They didn't have demonstration, they had riots. Fort Worth was, you know how they tell you, like, to wear your nice clothes and be the best you can in school on picture-taking day? It was picture-taking day for the protests. And it was a huge protest, and they marched their thing, they did their thing, they went across the bridge, they went up to the courthouse, they held their signs. They cleaned up after themselves. right? I mean, it was not a problem. And it all goes back to little mousy Betsy Price, the mayor of Fort Worth, basically said, you know, I'm just going to say there's a lot of people in Texas who are armed, and that you have a right to defend your place of business and your home. Yeah. That was it. That was the whole statement. They're like, oh, shit. So you're saying if I go in there, not only can somebody shoot me, but no one's going to do anything about it. Well, yeah, welcome to Texas. right? This right. is in Austin and this is in Dallas. Anywhere else, I'm sorry, that's the way it works. And I would estimate, based on the people I know in Fort Worth that run businesses, you have about a 25% chance of kicking any individual door in and getting shot. Right, and that's about. I'm not. I'm not inflating the number at all. I think it's a very conservative. About one in four. You kick the door in. You go into a business during something like that. Somebody behind that door will put a bullet in you. And it's amazing. There's no threats. There was no kitted up uh, boogaloo boys or anything. It was just the very basic tone. If you go into somebody's home or business with the use of force in this state, they have every right to defend themselves with lethal force. Bye. And, yeah, I'm not doing that. And I think that's the message that has to get out there. You know, I, I say it frequently. The only thing saving America at this stage is the Second Amendment. We pretty much lost the first. I mean, you know, we're all still trying. We're, we're out there saying what we think needs to be said. But, you know, if we were disarmed like they are in, in so many other places, things, you know, the, the, the authoritarian, soft socialism that they're trying now would probably be several degrees worse. And of course the thing that people, you know, don't understand is 
I venture to guess, you know, maybe for the first two years, once they do this switch where everyone's now, you know, what did you call us, uh, domesticated pigs. Yeah, we're domesticated. <laughs> uh, not me. But, you know, when the sheep... The sheep are going to be like, oh, look, they're taking care of us. Like, I don't have a job anymore, but I have, you know, a little bit of money. And, and you know, maybe, the, I don't know, maybe they're going to socialize, you know, socialize real estate or eminent domain. I mean, with the downtowns that you mentioned, you know, if we're going to have this fleeing from the city centers in South Africa, we, of course, did see that. You know, we saw a massive brain drain. Of course, uh, you know, 96 and then, well, 94 with the election, but then more. And so these, these business commercial districts were just decimated, you know, that they were just done. And so what happened was because of the vacuum, so that created a whole class of squatters who came in, right? And because Africa struggles, you know, so there were all these immigrants coming from other parts of Africa and stuff. So... You know, who, who knows? Who knows what the future is going to hold? But for the most part, you know, the best we can do, I think, is just to continue to educate people. I really do want peaceful solutions to this. I am not, you know, one of those people who's kind of itching, itching for anything beyond that, um, because you know, the violence—it just makes things worse. I think in the long run. But um, but yeah, it's it's. It's that Chinese curse saying, right? May we live in interesting times. I didn't think they needed to be quite this interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, let's just finish up. You, you've had a pretty dramatic personal evolution over the past few years. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, you know, I just... I was suffering from chronic fatigue. I honestly, you know, libertarians aren't the easiest crews to deal with. I was definitely drinking way too much. And my life was just pretty much out of balance. So I had, you know, in 2016 when we triggered the move, which was when we got the 20,000 signers, um, you know, I got Edward Snowden for that Liberty Forum. I mean, it was a big deal. That was sort of the zenith. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, I just need to take a break. And sort of figure out where am I at, where am I heading to. I'm also not getting any younger. I was overweight. I was not healthy. I was miserable. I had chronic sickness, inflammation, like all the stuff we know, right? And and I would pretend I was paleo, but, you know, I would cheat every weekend and whatever. So no, I, I understand. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to take a year and I'm actually just not going to pretend. I'm going to stop drinking, see how that works out. I'm going to actually, to be fair, I didn't even set a date on any of this. I was just like, I'm going to try and make these changes and I'll just kind of take them a day at a time, not in an AA way or anything. With the, with the not drinking, honestly, I read this book called This Naked Mind. And I just, I read it and I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense. It's a lot, it's very science based about what alcohol actually does to you. Uh, you know, I mean, it is a, it, it is a poison. Yep. You know, that we willingly take, and I was drinking every day, I didn't sleep well, your brain needs to decompress. There are lots of health reasons, right, for, mm -hmm. for not drinking. And so I read the book, and it was sort of compelling because it was science-y, but it was also very personal about this woman's journey, and she made it sound like it wouldn't be that hard. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try this and see how it goes. And it's been almost three years, I don't miss it, I don't think about it, I don't care. 
you know, that, that, that one just kind of went away. But I think what was happening with me personally is um, I, I, I was anxious, and so I was self-medicating uh, with, with alcohol, but alcohol is a neurotoxin. And so the, the alcohol was actually exacerbating the, the anxiety. Mm. So I was in this feedback loop where I was like, I'm anxious, I need a drink, I'll have a drink. Oh, why am I anxious, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So I was medicating with something that was making me sicker, I guess is a good way to look at it. And so when I eliminated the alcohol, the anxiety started to go down. And then I was very much sticking to just eating well and, and making that switch, I guess, in my mind from, you know, diet to lifestyle. So I definitely, you know, spent the time. I did the work. I started journaling which for me was just life-changing. I mean, I'm a writer, so I, you know, I would write, but I never really expended the energy on just writing every day. And so when I started on this journey, I was I, I made myself a few promises, and I was like, I can't make too many because then I'm not going to stick to any of them. But how about I just make a couple? So the one was I'm just not going to drink for a while and see how that goes. And the other one was I'm going to write in my journal every day. And when I started doing that, you know, it really just opened up an opportunity to unpack a lot of things for me. And, you know, and so I had to figure out, you know, some stuff in life and, and, and where am I going and what do I want to achieve and how am I going to get there and like all of that stuff. And so in The Ecstatic Pessimist, the, the last essay really does deal with a lot of this, but it was really becoming much more intentional and mindful and all the hippie words, you know, but just really just slowing down a little bit and kind of regrouping and looking at, you know, my life and and what I wanted to do. I think I'd also been incredibly focused on everyone else's expectations or, you know, everyone, you know, I, I serve a very large community. We have 20,000 people who are free staters, you know, it, it was just, it was a lot. And so I just stood back and I was like, ah, how about in order for me to be able to help all these other things, I need to be fighting fit and myself. And I had forgotten a little bit, you know, I'd always been very sporty. I'd always been very healthy. So just kind of getting back into my frame for, for I don't know how else to say it, you know, where I just, I feel like myself again. And, and sometimes I just, you know, I, I marvel because it'll strike me. I'll be out hiking somewhere or I'll be doing something. And I will literally be like, wow, I feel like how I felt when I was a kid. So the changes for me have been very positive. Um, you know, I recommend people can, you know, if they follow my blog, I, I talk a lot about, you know, these kinds of things and just, you know, how, how to do it and, incremental steps and you know I think sometimes when people want to change their lives they they try to do too many things um, I, I did actually do a lot of things but some of them by way of example like I was a chronic nail biter and and that was something that stemmed out of the fact that you know my dad was a diplomat and we traveled a lot I was in six primary schools you know they left us in Africa, moved to Sweden when I was 10. So, you know, like I had to learn to be very independent at a very young age. And one of the things was it manifested in me biting my nails, right? Mm. And so when the anxiety level went down, like 
I stopped biting my nails. Like, that was a 46-year-old habit, and it just, I was just like, oh, I'm done with that. Okay. You know, so, so you do one thing, and then it slowly informs this other thing, and then as you get more success, you know, it's, I jokingly say, you know, getting your life on tracks like a cocaine habit, like a coke habit, just the exact opposite. So you just have to routinely start to do the things, and then that routine is actually what, you know, makes it a self-fulfilling little machine. Like, you got to keep doing it, but then when you keep doing it, it actually works, and then you feel better, and then it just kind of goes on that way. So I, you know, honestly, like, I'm humble brag here, but, like, I'm really proud of myself because I love how I feel, It is pretty amazing. I didn't stop drinking altogether, but I cut my drinking back to like something reasonable. I mean, I just and and you know I did the keto thing starting last year. I lost about sixty pounds as well, close to oh, seventy wow. at this point. Uh, I look like a different person. The biggest thing that I've gotten from people is the, I look younger. Yeah, me too. Right, it's one thing to look better, but like people say, you look ten years younger, and that's that may not be. Um, far off, and it may not be far off biologically. With that doesn't mean that I'm I'm now ten years younger than my age. I'm no longer maybe ten years older than my age biologically. Like it reset, and it just everything in life works better. I think that like one of the things that we've been lulled into is the destruction of our own health, mm-hmm. and it is it is part of why people are so afraid of this thing. You know, you have the person running around in a scooter that most needs to be walking, bitching at me because I didn't wear my mask when I went fishing. Right. Right. Re- regardless of the the stupidity in that argument, um, the absurdity rather than the stupidity is that you're so fat that you have to use a scooter to buy bread, <laughs> and I am the one that's risking your health. Like I. And, and I feel that everything, we're not going to go down this road because we need to wrap up here, but I feel like everything in that our government has told us to do for the past 20 years has been wrong. And nothing has killed more people from that advice than, than nutrition and health. We, I 100% agree with you, and I actually think that is how we start to win because it is undeniable. You know, I wrote a blog post when this stuff happened, and I said, you know, you're so afraid of dying, but how are you living? Here are the things to do to have a better life. And number one is switch off your damn TV, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's – you know what's amazing? If you turn the TV off for two weeks and turn it back on, you realize how stupid it is to watch it, right? Like that's the only – you turn it back on, you go, what the hell? You feel like you're watching some kind of like – Oh, I guess I guess the Onion and Babylon be merged and created a satirical news network. Like it's so preposterously stupid. When I was on vacation, my wife and I would go down to the beach and come back up to the hotel at different times, and, and I'd happen to go up there, and she had like channel surfed while she was you know having a cup of coffee or something, and left the TV on MSNBC. So I walk in and MSNBC's on, and it's just right when Florida started to have its case spike and all, and holy shit. It sounded like we were in the middle of World War Three, World yeah. War Three, with a chemical weapons attack going on in every major city. And I was sitting there, and I was laughing. I was, I was, I was laughing. I, I couldn't, I couldn't take it seriously. And I heard the way they were talking about Florida, 
And I was thinking, imagine if you are a scared old blue hair up in New York, upper, upper New York State that really thinks the COVID's going to come get you from South Florida. What they think Florida looks like. They think Florida like people lying in the streets dead. Right. And I'm on a beach fishing for, for sharks. And everybody's happy. And there's like party boats driving around and shit. <laughs> right? And you're just going, there's such a disconnect from reality. And you notice that everybody's worried about the place that's not where they are. Yes. Right? No matter where they are, no matter what happened in their backyard, they're not worried about them. They're worried about somebody else somewhere far, far away. Like when you want to build a mythology, you know, it's, a, it's in a place far, far away a long time ago, so you can't verify anything. Well, today we'll just beam in some images, you know, from an ER or something in, in Dade County, Florida. And now you're afraid in New Jersey when your state is completely idiotic. Your, your state killed its own citizens in the way they handled this, and you're worried about somebody eating a taco on the beach in frickin' Miami. And, and when you see that, when you, like, when you see it day to day, you almost become accustomed to it. But if you will separate even for 14 days, you turn that on and you're like, oh my God. Yeah, How does anybody believe any of this? You know, and I always think also is imagine if we had used all these resources, right? So instead yeah. of fear-mongering and terrifying people, if we had spent all this time actually equipping people with the tools to make themselves healthy. You know, I posted this thing. It was uh, it kind of blew up, right? And it was a little tongue-in-cheek, and I was looking for trouble. I admit it. But I said, you know, if you want me to wear a mask, then I want you to eat right, get enough sleep, and, um, and you know, exercise or something. Something, something along those lines. Are you ready, Karen? And it probably had, you know, three, four hundred comments. It got shared a lot. You know, maybe got a lot of people quite mad. But... On that thread of about three, four hundred comments, only two people in the entire thing said, deal, right? Yeah. So I'm like, you're saying I'm a healthy person and you're telling me I have to wear a mask to make you feel better. But then I want you to trade something, right? You're infringing on me so I can infringe on you. And I thought, wow, if we had just used all this time instead of scaring people if we had said we want you to be healthy we want to boost your immune system here's the recipe the recipe is get enough sleep don't drink too much hang out with your friends make sure this is the way you're eating don't eat carbs eat very yeah. low carbs eat low medium protein eat lots of good fats we could literally have empowered millions of people, but instead we're like, how can we keep you sick, slave, and then put something to muzzle you and suffocate you and kill your life force? Yeah. Are you there? Huh. Yeah. I'm okay, you're done. I, I just want to be sure because it was like that was an abrupt ending. But yeah, no, I agree. Like, and, and before anybody thinks, before anybody thinks that we're being kind of uh, ridiculous with stating that this would make a huge difference, the number one comorbidity for COVID other than age is obesity. Exactly. And it, no one wants to talk about it. And, and let me tell you, right. Said to me you could, because of the weight loss. Yeah. They were like, but Carla, would you have said this six years ago? And I was like, you know what? 
Actually, I think I probably would have. Maybe I would have. Maybe I would have mask because it probably would have made me feel even sicker than it does now. You yeah. Know? Well, and maybe you would have like you know stepped up and did it six years earlier. Who knows? I mean, like if if somebody actually had that message of like boosting your immunity, etc. Anyway, I think we've done a, a great episode. I appreciate you being with us today. You want to? Uh, you have like a bunch of websites in the notes, so I have all of them linked to you. You want to maybe give one or two on the air before we wrap up? Sure. So I recommend people go to CarlaGarrick.com and you can kind of find things from there. And then anyone who wants to check out the Free State Project, go to FSP.org. Uh, Jack will be coming back sometime to New Hampshire and come do some uh, speechifying at one of our events. And, uh, yeah, just check us out. And if people can donate to my Senate race, I need the help. And buy my book, The Ecstatic Pessimist. That's it from me. All right. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, Carla. Thanks, Jack. Great interview, as always, with Carla. She's just a great. She's like one of my favorite people. And I, I really do think, you know, like I've said, if you're considering a change, especially a change in where you're going to plant your feet, I know that New Hampshire is, is a great place to go. And it isn't right for everybody. But it should be on that list to consider. And I really think it's worth taking a visit. I really think it's worth getting in touch with the people that are part of FSP and saying, hey, I'm going to be coming. I'm going to be in town. I'm going to be up there for this length of time. And I would contact them before you go like, and say, like, where's the best place to go right now? Here's what we're looking for. Here's what we want in our, our little mini vacation and, uh, and what we want to see and what we want to learn while we're there. What's the best place to go? What airport should we fly into? Where should we get a car? You know, what have you. Because these people really will help you. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing to be part of. Um, I'm not going. I'm not going. I have a tremendous amount invested into my property here, my little Jacktopia. Uh, my wife and I were talking recently about how if we won the lottery, we probably wouldn't even move then. If we won like a $50 million Powerball or something, which ain't going to happen because we don't play. But if we did, if somebody just like, Mr. Spierko, your uh, long-lost uncle just left you $50 billion or whatever, we probably wouldn't leave. We really are happy where we're at, but if you're not, if you're not, give New Hampshire a visit. See if it works for you, because if I was going to move, if I decided I was going to move, I probably would go to a few places and visit a few places, and I would go back to New Hampshire. I would go back to New Hampshire, and there's there's just a lot going on there. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Remind you that if you want to support this show, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Every day I have an item of the day. Uh, today I re-ran the, uh, the Turkish pruning knife from yesterday, pruning and harvesting knife. Um, if you're listening to this, it's, it's gone. They, they were in low stock this morning. Uh, I put it out on social media that I was running that as an item of the day again. They sold out bef bef before like 11 o'clock. So, um, They're not available. You can keep an eye on them when they come back. Remember when I bring you something new and exciting like that, a lot of times I, I'm sure there's some guy in Turkey right now going, what the hell? What what happened to my inventory? And, and you know, and like, what do I do now? Um, it's the only supplier that seems to have them. But you can find all the stuff I recommend at tspaz.com, and you can help support the show just by doing your online shopping there. Also, consider becoming a member. Use the discounts. Get your money back. It's kind of a no-lose proposition. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and... Uh, 
talk about the song of the day today. The song of the day today is, again, we're doing uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers Week, just because I always loved George Thorogood, especially as a kid growing up. This, is, this was music that I always enjoyed playing in like my beat-up-ass old car. I had this car, uh, it was a 75 Pontiac Grand Prix LJ with a 455 in it. Big old freaking 455, big block motor. Big old Rochester Quadrajet carburetor on the top of it. Put the hammer down on it, it was like, whoa, whoa. And, you know, it was like a $300 car. And I had like a $200 stereo in it, which was the stuff, you know, from Radio Shack, where you get your amp and your head and whatever, and your 6x9s. And, you know, $200 stereo for a kid in the 80s, you were making an investment. It's probably worth more than the car, even though I paid a little more for the car. And uh, there was a lot of music that I used to just drive around and listen to. And George Thorogood and the Destroyers was definitely, you know, one of the... There's several uh, several tapes in that tape case that would go in that Radio Shack stereo uh, from George Thorogood. This was one of my favorite songs. No, not bad to the bone. We're saving it for Friday. I can't... I actually didn't want to play it because everybody knows it. And I like to play stuff that's maybe a little less known. Um, but I can't do George Thorogood week and not play bad to the bone. And why not? cap it off on Friday. Uh, this song actually was originally done by Hank Williams Sr. It was covered by George Thorogood and the, and the Destroyers. It was covered uh, by Hank Jr. I think Willie Nelson I think did it. I, like A ton of people did this song. It's moving on over. Um, when you have a cover, it's either really close to the original or really different. And this one's about as different as it gets. Right, you got the sax going, sax going, the tempo's up, the key's different. You got that bluesy thing going on, and and, and Hank Senior was. I, I don't have to explain to you what Hank Senior was. Either you know or you won't understand. But if you listen to the two of them after, they don't even sound like the same song. You're like, oh, they're the same words, I guess. But I always loved this song. I really did, and it wasn't there wasn't a thing about it that was really symbolic or meaningful or anything like that. It was just good music. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Yeah,